Welcome to the Divorce Survival Guide podcast, where we have open and honest conversations about co-parenting, separation, divorce, and the hardest question of all, should you stay or should you go? I'm Kate Anthony, your Divorce Survival Guide, and I'm here to help you navigate some of the roughest waters you've ever swum in and answer some of your toughest questions. I've been to hell and back, and now it's my mission in life to help you get to the other side of this process with your sanity and your heart intact. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. I'm really excited about today's episode. I have been following Laura McCowan for quite a few years on Instagram and all the places. And um, I secretly really wanted to be her friend for a long time. And I was really jealous because she's friends with my friend Andrea. And I was like, I want to be friends with her too. (laughs) And then I read her book. Um, She has a memoir that came out recently called We Are the Luckiest. And it's a sobriety memoir, but it is so much more than that. If you are not sober, if you're not struggling to get sober, if you have no intention of ever getting sober, um, I still think you should read this book. Because, you know, one of the things that she talks about a lot in the book is like, whatever your thing is. And guys, we all have a thing. And by the way, most of us have way more than one thing. Alcohol didn't become my thing until I was well into my 40s. Um, before that, you know, relationships, people, men, food. I mean, I've had so many things. <laughs> and the wisdom in Laura's memoir is applicable to every single thing that you can imagine. So please read it. Like I said, I'm, I feel so honored to have Laura um, on the podcast today. I think that maybe, you know, maybe we're maybe we're going to be friends now because I think maybe she liked me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I mean, a little bit. So Laura is the author of We Are the Luckiest. She is a former public relations executive who has become recognized as a fresh voice in the recovery movement. Beloved for her soulful and irreverent writing, so true. She now leads sold-out yoga-based retreats and courses that teach people how to say yes to a bigger life. Uh, she hosted the iTunes Top 100 podcast Home with over 1.5 million downloads and has been featured on the Today Show in The Guardian, New York Times, WebMD, and more. She also has a fabulous Instagram page that you should uh, head on over and follow. Um, that's in the show notes. This was a really important conversation to me as someone who is coming up on two years of sobriety, right? I'm still kind of pretty early in sobriety. And so, um, and while my story is completely different from Laura's, so much of the feelings and the process and, um, it, it, you know, it's so much is the same. And like I said, it doesn't matter whether it's alcohol or not. I actually related to, so much of Laura's um, story and appreciated the wisdom in her book. In some places, more from not the alcohol um, perspective of my life. So I'll shut up now and I will bring you my conversation with Laura McCowan. Hey, Laura, thank you so much for coming. Hi, thank you. 
I have to say, I have to, I'm going to fangirl for a minute because your book, I, I love it so much. I, I admit I just read it, which is so dumb. No, why is that dumb? Well, just because, you know, it's been around for a little while. like I, A few months, yeah. Well, okay, I listened to it. I didn't read it. And it was one of those things where I was like, everywhere I went, I was like, wait, can I, can I keep listening? Do I have enough time? <laughs> yeah. I, I love it. And one of the things that I love is that while it's a sobriety memoir, it is not remotely just about that. And I want to like impress upon my listeners that, you know, even if you don't relate to the story of alcoholism or mm-hmm. sobriety, this is a, this is a book that, that touches everyone, right? Cause you talk about that. Mm-hmm. Like your thing was alcohol. But we all have a thing for many of them. Many things. Exactly. Exactly. But one of the things that I think is really relevant is that you talk about your, your marriage and that you got divorced in the midst of all of this. Yes. Talk to us a little bit about that and what that was like from you from a sobriety. Yeah. And where it fell in the, the timeline of things. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I got married in, uh, 2006. Mm -hmm. And, and at that point I had sort of kind of knew that I liked alcohol more than other people. I kind I had like this internal worry about my drinking, but it certainly wasn't a thing where it was like, I'm going to have to quit someday or something like that. I blended into, and drinking was a big part of me and my ex-husband's courtship and all of that as we were in our twenties and we separated in 2012 and gosh, there's so much, there's so much to this. So we separated in 2012 and I say this in the book and, and I think it's true as much as we can know our stories, you know, like, cause it's really hard to talk. It's really hard to figure out why marriages fall apart. Like what, because there's so many things. Exactly. But I know it wasn't just about the drinking, but the drinking made everything worse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. As it tends to. (laughs) Yeah. It wasn't like there wasn't, you know, I was actually the one who wanted out and my drinking was the only really coping mechanism that I had at that time of my life for really until I got sober. I didn't know what to do except for to drink at things. Yeah. And he was, he was, because he was the closest person to me, saw what drinking really was like for me. And even he didn't know, right? Like I even hid things from him. Interesting. But, but he did say many times, you know, stop fucking drinking. Mm -hmm. This is you, this is, you know, this is a problem for you. Right. So we, when, when I, when we separated in 2012, I was so relieved because, you know, I think a lot of people feel relief because you've been at war for, you know, or like wrestling with this decision for a long time. Mm-hmm. But I, I really felt relief because I could finally drink the way I wanted to drink. Mm. And he wasn't, because we definitely had these like parent-child roles, you know, where I was the, the naughty child and he was the parent. And one of the things that he monitored was my drinking. And then once he was gone, I didn't, have anyone watching me anymore but that also meant that my drinking got really bad like like it just spiked and it was already bad but it got very scary right and then it took us three years to actually file for divorce but we so we were separated for three years and I think there was a combination of you know reasons why that was true but our daughter was 
three at the time when we got separated, I hit my sort of bottom that I talk about at the very beginning of the book in 2013. So it was like a year, you know, and in that 2012 to 2013 was a freaking dark year. Yeah. I mean, drinking wise, it was like, I, I was completely unhinged. You know, I didn't know what was going to happen to me anymore. When I started drinking, I was sleeping with all kinds of people. I was, the wheels just completely came off and, um, and, and you were blacking out too, right? Like you were waking always up like, how the fuck did I get here? And blacking out. And yeah, it was just one horror show after another and almost getting fired from my job. And I got a DUI in May of 2013 and that was horrific. And then the bottom incident where I talked about was when I left my daughter in a hotel room overnight um, at my brother's wedding because I was blacked out. And that's what got me started on working towards sobriety. I didn't get sober until a year and a half later. Um, but I started, you know, I started dipping, dipping my toe in sobriety at that point, which I'd never done before. Right. So, you know, there's sort of the, the divorce part, but there's the bigger, if you zoom out the relationship part and alcohol for me, the relationships with men, romantic relationships and sex and all that, was just like so tightly linked. I, I so relate to that. I so most women do. I mean, it's it's crazy how I think when I first got sober, and I've only been sober for I don't know, nineteen months, maybe like almost awesome. almost two years ish. And it's like first person, the first time I had sex sober, it was like I wanted to wait a really long time because. I was like, I don't actually know how to do this. When I looked back at my life, besides with my ex-husband, I never drank. Like I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't drink in my marriage because I was married to a sober person. So we like never drank. And I would like, and I was never the alcoholic. That's the thing. Right. I was was always the, I'm the Al-Anon. I am the one. Like, you know, like, you know, but when I got divorced, my drinking increased and increased and increased. And that intimacy, like that block and that like every relationship and every ounce of sex I think I had since my divorce was in some way fueled by alcohol. And so when I took alcohol out of the picture, I was like, well, I don't know if I even want to do this. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's completely bizarre. It's a Mm -hmm. total... Yeah, you are, you, you, it's an entirely different experience. I mean, the first time I had sex, I was drunk and pretty much every time after that, you know, with the exception of with my husband, because we were together for so long, but every other time I can honestly say I was intoxicated to some degree and and oftentimes extraordinarily intoxicated. Right. Right. So I didn't know how to do any of that sober. That was a whole learning yeah. I didn't know how to even be in relationship with someone without alcohol as like the third party. Yeah. No, not at all. Not at all. I still don't. I'm, I'm still not sure I do because I was just really starting to date in earnest when the pandemic hit. Oh, uh, uh, so. yeah. Well, for what it's worth, I don't either. I mean, it's not that the alcohol is not there, but it's like, we're new. We, we have to learn everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Over yeah. again. Yeah. And I love, you know, one of the things that I really appreciate um, about your book is that it doesn't end with you like, you know, and, and when you introduced John, I was like, 
John's going to be the guy that she ends up married to and everything's happily ever after. And I was like, and at the no. end, like, oh. <laughs> no, this is not an eat, pray, love story. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Not that I, I love that story and I love her, but this, that it, this is not that. Exactly. And I appreciate that. I appreciate it so much. And I think my audience will too, by the way. <laughs> the same yeah. There is no fairy tale yet, you know, yet, or maybe ever. I'm not the divorce coach who tells everyone that I'm now happily remarried and like, you know, and you can too, or what, or even if you, even if they don't say it, it's, there's an implication, right? And but, but we're headed there, right? Yep. Totally not sure that that's ever going to be a thing, but here I am a lot happier. Yeah. A lot fucking happier. And I think that that's, that sort of is a great segue into, you know, one of the chapters in your book is about, is called, the title of it is find a house where the truth is told. Mm. And I felt like your book actually was so much that house. Right. And I yeah. think that, you know, my Facebook group and in, in particular is a place where the truth is told by thousands of women. And I think that you and I sort of share that mission and align with that mission of telling the fucking yeah. truth, even if it's not like wrapped up in a pretty little bow. Right. Yeah. It's the only way. It's the only way. Yeah, it really is. And for your experience, that was started in the rooms of AA. Yeah. Right. But then I, I just think it's, it's, it's a metaphor for so much else. Right. Yeah. Well, I didn't know how to tell the truth about anything. I wasn't, I didn't grow up in a house where the truth was told. I, I think that we all kind of learn to lie a little bit or a lot about as we, as we grow up, mm-hmm. whether it's to keep up appearances or to not hurt people or to make things easier or to keep the peace or whatever, we learn to, we learn to lie a little or a lot. Yeah. And what I, what, what that looked like for me eventually was there were so many different versions of Laura in the world. None of them that were, of which were really who I was. I didn't even really know who I was. There was work, Laura, and every different almost relationship had it. And I had so many lies, you know, I had so many lies and addiction really breeds that you have to start, you start lying to sort of keep this thing going Mm because you don't want people to see what's really going on. But I also just lied so easily. Like, yeah, you know, it became this, I didn't think that I could tell the truth. I just didn't think that that was an option. And, and really when that, I talk about this conversation um, with my husband in maybe not that chapter, but a different one about telling the truth mm-hmm. where I was having, I was not faithful to him. Like I wasn't. And, and, and I drank a lot. Like that was all fueled by and medicated by alcohol. Mm-hmm. And I remember, and I loved him. And I wanted to be married to him and I didn't want to be married to him and I didn't know how to do it. And, 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 and right. All these men, many things were true at the same time. And I remember sitting at dinner with him one night and just thinking like, you're like two feet away from me, but I have an entire world inside of me that you don't know anything about. And I could burst that. I could change that by just saying a few words, but I won't. And I can't, and I never will. And so I started to, I just accepted that I would always lie. Yeah, right. 
And I, I love when you talk about how you had to like come out of that, that like when you committed yourself to telling the truth that you would like call people and be like, I, I when I, I said that slide, lied to you about like the stupidest thing, like actually I've never been to that restaurant. I don't know why I said I did, <laughs> but like, you know, <laughs> I still have to do that. It's so freaking weird, but it's so great that you like, right. Cause the way it, it sounds to me, like the way that you clean it up is just so like, I don't know. There's like almost, I'm sure there is judgment on your, on your part. Right. But it's like, Oh, I did that thing. I'm sorry. I don't know why I did that thing, but I did it. And you move on and then you're free. Right. Well, that's, I mean, ultimately the, the, the you know, there is a saying that secrets keep you sick and it's true They they really do. Mm-hmm. I, it was a matter of life and death for me to have, to not have many versions of myself in the world. It, it was a matter of life and death for me to have one version of myself, yeah. one version. And that doesn't mean everybody knows everything about me. And it doesn't, that's not what that means, but it means that I'm not hiding things and I'm not, I don't have secrets, you know, especially yeah. secrets from myself. And there are people in my life who do know everything and I have to keep it that way. Yeah. Because the moment I start getting sneaky, I'm in trouble, you know? So yeah, it becomes this sort of, when we lie, when we're untruthful and, and untruthful, what I learned is, is not just like, we know when we're out like outright deceiving people. We know that that's like what we think of when we think of lying. Right. But I realized that I lied in these more socially acceptable ways, like people pleasing. We don't typically think of that as a form of dishonesty, but it is. It's a insidious form of dishonesty. It is. It really is. And I want to actually, like, I want to hear all the other versions, but, but I also want to come back to that because I think that's a We can talk, we can just go down that route. Yeah. I mean, because it's so, it's so true. Right. And as, as a card carrying (laughs) former people pleaser. Yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's an, it's an intense form of dishonesty. Yes. And it's a, it's almost a prized form of dishonesty. You know, I'm such a people pleaser. I'm, I'm a good person. My intentions are so good. And what happens? So when we people please, um, when we say we want to do something that we don't want to do, when we say yes, when we know, or no, when we mean yes. And I don't mean like in big ways. I mean like small things like, can you talk right now? Uh-huh. I said, Kate, can I, I send you a text? I need to talk right now. Mm-hmm. And you are in the middle of doing something really important and you've had a shitty day and you have no energy and you just can't do it, but you say yes, because you're supposed to, you're being dishonest with me, being emotionally dishonest with me. And over the, over the course of, of a life uh, or a relationship that just, you build all this resentment and that person you're, you're, depriving that person of honest experience of who you are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So it's manipulative. Mm-hmm. And cause they don't know you're resentful, but you're fucking resentful. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So I was going to say when you're, when, people, when you're saying yes to everything, you think like, I'm such a good person. I'm such a giver. It's like, well, you're not right. You're actually, right. you're, you are. Cause wrong. you don't mean it. <laughs> you don't mean it. You build resentments and you also, there's something else about how it's like you're lying to yourself that you're a good, like a, yeah, it, it's, 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 a, yeah. it's so twisted and insidious. Like you said, 
Yeah. And, and we do it for good reasons, right? Especially women are so trained that this is how you're supposed to be. That's what it means to be a good person. And men feel, there are men that feel that way too, but it's dishonesty. And what helps me, what the re, it helps me so much to hear it in those terms and to see it in those terms, because then it was like, oh, oh, that's something I want to fix. Like I, I, I could see it, it, it took the, when you are constantly people pleasing, you feel like you have no choice. Like it's out of your control, right? You, you don't, you aren't taking responsibility. Well, everyone just asks, expects me to be there and I have to be there for everybody. And I have to do this and I have to do that. And you have no, there's no responsibility there. But when you look at it like, oh, oh, I'm the, in, I'm the one injuring another person by doing this. It's like, okay, all right. I can, I, the, I have to take responsibility for this. So it actually, to me, it was very empowering, not easy, but, but very empowering. So that, that was massive to me because what happened is as part of like the, my, my work in sobriety, I looked at, took inventory of all my relationships and the relationships where I had felt the most tension and there was the most stress was where I had this dynamic. Right. Right. You know? Yeah. And it was like, huh, the common thread here is Laura doesn't show up as who she is. Yeah. Right. Almost from the beginning. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. we want to be liked and we want to be this all for good reasons. Well, yes, but well, I mean, I don't know that that's actually a good reason, right? Like to be, it's all for, be like, it's sort of self, it's actually self-serving, right? Cause it's like, you yeah. think it's for other people. You're like, well, I want to be there for other people, but what you really want to do is be like, so it's actually about you. <laughs> oh yeah. No, that's what I mean. Yeah. It's a, it's good reason. It's, it's a, it's an, we, do, we are always just trying to get our needs met. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. That's all we're ever doing. That's all anyone's ever doing. And a lot of us have learned the way we get our needs met is to be likable, right? Especially women. But we, but we feel this internal when we are, when we don't have relationships where we are showing up as we actually are, mm-hmm. we're, we're extraordinarily lonely anyway. So it's this big catch. Yes, absolutely. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor today. Today's sponsor is. Soberlink. Now, the Soberlink system is designed to make parenting time safer with real time remote alcohol monitoring. Soberlink uniquely combines a breathalyzer with wireless connectivity and is the only system that includes facial recognition, tamper detection, and advanced reporting. Parents can submit a test anytime, anywhere. Thanks to Soberlink's wireless technology, which delivers test results by text message or email to the concerned parties. Simplify co-parenting arrangements by using the system that provides transparency and proof of sobriety throughout the day. Flexible schedules combined with real-time delivery of results make Soberlink the experts in remote alcohol monitoring technology. And for a limited time, get $50 off your device by emailing info at soberlink.com and mentioning the Divorce Survival Guide. And now back to our show. So what are some of the other sort of insidious ways that we're not honest since we were sort of going down that path? I mean, that's a, that's a big one, you know, connected to that or maybe adjacent to that is not having boundaries, not expressing boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. and that looks a lot like people pleasing, honestly. Yeah. Well, it can. Yeah. 
can. Yes, definitely. It can. Yeah. Right. I, I mean, I would, I would sort of, I would put it all under the people pleasing category. Yeah, it probably really is. It probably really yeah. is. Yeah. Keeping the peace. Any way that you sort of shape shift mm-hmm. and, and make the, what the other person, what you think the other person wants yeah. you to do more important than what you, what is true for you. I used to do this thing just because I'm, cause I was so fiercely codependent, right. Where, you know, when I was at the height of my codependency and it was like really like intense, yeah. and I was bottoming out on that. Yeah. Over 20 years ago, when I first walked into my first Alamon, before I walked into my first Alamon meeting, right? And what I would do is like, I couldn't tell you my favorite color. Like I I had no sense of who I was at all because I was constantly had my focus on the other person always, right? What do you want? Well, what do you like? Right. And we would do this thing where I remember my ex-husband and I would be like walking down the street. We we lived in New York and, you know, in New York, you kind of stop at all the cafes and all the restaurants and you look at the menus outside and you decide where you want to eat. And I would always just stand back because it didn't matter. Mm -hmm. Right. Because it was the only thing that mattered was what he wanted to eat. Right. But then I would go into the restaurant and there would be nothing that I wanted to eat on the menu. And then I'd be resentful and annoyed that like, I didn't like anything. But that was his problem. <laughs> it was his fault. Right? It's a perfect example. Right? Yeah. It's totally like, I'm such a people pleaser that then I'm, then I'm fucking angry. And then we're having a shitty night. Yep. That's a perfect example. But I couldn't right. have told you what I wanted to eat. Right. Well, that's the problem with codependency. It's like the disease of the lost self. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You just don't know. Yeah. You have a chapter that I think is like the most brilliant thing ever. I told you this before we started recording. Um, It's called the pregnancy principle. Mm -hmm. And I feel like it applies to everything, not just everything. So can you talk about what that is, what the pregnancy principle is? Sure. So when I, so when I was a a few months sober, actually it was like after a year sober and I, started to think about, because I struggled really hard to get sober. It wasn't a, I show up at the first 12 step meeting and and I'm off. It was like, I was in what I call purgatory for a long time. Mm -hmm. I fought it really hard. It was the last thing I wanted and um, all that. So I got to be about a year sober and I started like, reflecting on why I had made it Mm. when I, when I really, what made the difference when I really thought many times that I just was never going to get sober. I just didn't think I could. Wow. And what, what spurred the pregnancy principle was I, I started writing like before I was even sober, I started writing about all of this, but people would send me letters. I had like a section on my blog called Dear Laura. And someone sent me a letter about how she was going to have a dinner party. She was like four months sober. She's going to have a dinner party. And she was struggling with a decision of whether to serve alcohol or not, because the guests expected, you know, they had in the past, they'd always had alcohol and at their dinners and her husband still drank. And she was just like doing this, this struggle thing that we do. So I, in my response to her, I developed this whole pregnancy principle theory because what became very obvious to me was I was saving my life by getting sober mm-hmm. and it required, well, this is what I thought of. I thought, when in my life did I just, 
was I so clear right. about what was required mm-hmm. to do this thing I was doing and where I just, as a people pleaser and all that, didn't give a fuck about what other people were thinking. And the, I remembered that's how it was when I was pregnant. And it's pretty much how it is when anyone's pregnant. And you don't have to be a woman and you don't have to have ever been pregnant to get this. We sort of have this mutual understanding, a societal understanding of pregnant women. Like you don't question their choices of what they're eating, whether they need sleep or how precious it is or how important it is. We just go, yeah, you do, you do what you need to do. Okay. Well, <laughs> that's a whole other story. <laughs> that's, we're, we're not married to him anymore. Well, we are not. <laughs> uh, but you know what I mean. Like I generally, people to undermine what your your point. It's just generally I was people like, get it. Yeah, that happens. Right? Yeah, that happens. <laughs> yeah, that's a thing that happened. That is a thing. Oh that my happens. God. But right, exactly. People are generally like, if you're like, I'm pregnant and I need to take a nap. People are like, go lie down. Or I'm pregnant, so I'm not eating the sushi. Or right. I'm pregnant, so I'm not going to drink with you tonight. Whatever. I'm not it drinking. Is. Right. I'm not drinking because I'm pregnant. Mm-hmm. Right. So generally, that is how it works. And, and I was like, how is this any different? It's not any different. Getting sober is not any different or really surviving what you need to survive so that you can save your life, whether it's an abusive relationship, an eating disorder, the death of a loved one, a divorce, right? In order for something new to grow, there has to be a boundary. Like this is like true Physically, it's true biologically, mm-hmm. right? You right. put you put plants in a, a pot. Yeah. <laughs> you have they have to have that boundary yeah. in order to have a shot at growing. Mm-hmm. So sobriety, I was like, because to me, when she wrote me that letter, I was like, Are you fucking kidding me? Of course you don't have alcohol. Like that's just so it's so ridiculous. Of course you don't, you know. Right. But, but I also know that hem and hemming and hawing, because I did it too. But what made the difference for me in and why at the time that I wrote that letter, I had 11 months or whatever of sobriety was because I treated my sobriety like I, like I had a life growing inside of me because I did. I treated it with the same attention and respect and care that I did my pregnancy. Absolutely. So what that meant was I respected the process, that I was in a process and that it was going to take a while, you know? Yes. And, and that process is sort of out of our control in a way, you know, we, we can control some things and we can't control a lot. We don't control the fact that a pregnancy is nine months, no matter what, no matter how much we want to influence that it doesn't go faster. doesn't go slower for the most part. Right. We, and we don't really have to understand everything that happens either. We just have to respect that we are in a process. It also meant that anything that threatened my sobriety, anyone or anything had to fucking go. Yeah. Had to go. Yep. Yep. And, and so those are the basic, you know, premises and and like, it just seemed like such an easy way to articulate that because everyone gets it right. Yeah. There's, there's four points in the pregnancy principle. I can't think of it right now, but it's like essentially that like you're in a process, accept that. Mm -hmm. And Anything that it, that doesn't support this process has to go. Yeah. Right. And that's so, and I think that that, like I said, like, I think that it applies to almost any big change. I think that you're going through. It's really relevant to divorce. I think mm-hmm. that we all forget 
that divorce is a process. We don't want it to be a process. Right? No. We want it to be like, I'm done. I'm free. I'm out. Let's go. Because the lead up to getting a divorce is so much struggle, right? Right, exactly. And that's part of the process, by the way. Like the divorce yeah. itself, it's like the process is this big arc. And like the divorce itself might be at the at the pinnacle of that arc, but they're like, the arc is still going. Like you're still oh I joke that divorce is a gift that never stops giving. Never. Like I've been, di- <laughs> I've been divorced for eight years and it doesn't ever stop. It, it really <laughs> doesn't. I've been divorced for almost 11. And it's one of those things that, I mean, our relationship, I, I say that divorce is like a living, breathing entity. Like if you have kids, you're tethered yes. forever. And, yes. and my relationship with my ex has like gone up and down and up and down. Mm. We're now in a band together. We're in a pandemic band together with our son and like my neighbors. So like, we're in a good spot right now, but it, I mean, there have been times when it, like we didn't speak for a period of time. <laughs> That's so good to hear. Cause it's like, um, the, the lows can be hard. It's a long-term relationship still. It is. And, look at and, that and there's no other relationship like it, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's no other person that like you literally have to stay connected to on a quite intimate level while yeah. also having like really strong boundaries while also having to witness things that are like really painful, like, you know, when he got married or you know, like, you know, when he got engaged, that was like to a friend of mine, by the way. So like, you know, there's just like, there's, there's literally no other relationship like it. Yeah. You're so right. You're so right. I, I like I said, before we recorded, I don't talk, I haven't talked much about this, you know, mm-hmm. other than with friends and I, most of my friends are married. Right. Yes. I was early to oh, get on. divorced. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'll talk to you about this all day, every day <laughs> mm-hmm. because it is, it, it's so, you know, and then, you know, I, I know I fucked up and had to make amends for like my major fuck ups in the divorce, you know, yes, um, yes. long after the divorce. And then, you know, he's done shit. And then I've watched him do shit that triggered the hell out of me. He didn't do anything to me, but he was totally stuff on the, you know, others that was triggering shit that happened that I thought I was done with. Right. Oh my God. It's so real. And by the way, the biggest one, Laura was the biggest trigger I had where I hit my emotional bottom with my, with my ex was something that got triggered when I'd been sober for one month. Ugh. And I was like, I, what are like, I, I, now I have no tools. <laughs> like the Totally. Only, the only choice I have is to actually be with this feeling. And I think that my drinking had increased over the 10 years since my divorce, because I wasn't processing so much, totally so much of the trauma and the, and the pain and all of it. I wasn't dealing with it. I was just happy to be out. I so get that. I thought I had like bypassed all that. Yeah. I was like, oh, I'm out. So it's fine. We're done. Right. I'm out. And I, and I was drinking so much mm-hmm. and then I had to get sober, which required everything right. to survive. So I still wasn't processing. Right. I didn't even start to until like five years right. after. Yeah. And I was like, oh, here it is. Right. <laughs> oh, hundred percent. Oh yeah. Here it is. Here it is. And then like my, that started for me <laughs> one month of sobriety. Cause it got like smashed in my face. Oh my god! And I was like, <laughs> and it was also Christmas. Like, <laughs> such a nightmare. Oh my god! It was a nightmare, but it really is. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It never ever stops. No, no. And I sort of settled into that now around 
eight years because mm-hmm. hey, just keep thinking like, oh, we've hit a stride and it's all good. And then it's like, boom, okay, yeah. there's another level I didn't know about. Yep. And fast thing that, you know, and I think that, you know, I get this question all the time from women, from my clients and from women in my Facebook group or, or wherever um, listeners. And they're like, how do I, how do I handle the grief or how do I handle, you know, the pain or I just don't want, and I, I feel like what they're actually asking me is how do I, how do I not feel it? Mm-hmm. How does it not hurt so much? Yeah. How do, and, and it's a, and it's a horrible thing to have to say, how you handle it is by actually going like real fucking deep with it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like get yourself, yeah. you know, that's a truth with everything. It's an unfortunate truth with everything, but we, we fear, you know, pain is, is the teacher, man. It, it is the teacher. It totally is. It totally is. And it, you know, there's so much freedom as much as I hate it. And we all hate it. Right. But there's so much freedom on the other side of just fucking going deep, going dark with it. Right. And letting it pull you under. Yes. Right. It's well, that- did you, have you ever heard the equation? Like, like pain times resistance equals suffering. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Usually the resistance that we, that is making us suffer so badly. And once we actually go, okay, I'm going to let this grief take me down. And the Carla McLaren is this writer that talks about emotions. And she says that grief is grief is what brings us into the river of all souls. And I just love that metaphor because what, what happens for me in deep, deep grief, what has happened for me is you enter this different realm of the human experience. It has the potential to breach such compassion and sort of depth. It's all chemical. Like it changes you Mm. right in the way that that you need to be changed. And one of the primary ways that it changes you for me is, is made me so much more compassionate for other people's pain. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Because it's bigger than you. It's, it is a, it is a river and the, and the river part is that it has to move. It's supposed to move. Right. It needs to move. It's energy that it's slow moving energy, but it needs to move. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love, you do talk, I'm so related to this. I was like, oh girl, when you talked about the day that you were just sort of flattened, literally on the floor, right? Where you were being hit with a wave of all sorts of really big feelings. And your first instinct was I'm going for a run and I'm going to run it off and I'm going to run it out. Right. And then you ended up literally on the floor (laughs) and just allowing all the feelings. Yeah. I just, I so, I thought I was so related to that moment. I was like, yep. Well, in that moment, like what I, what I, whenever I have been able to do that, and there's always a lot of struggle before that happens. Mm -hmm. Whenever I've been able to do that, I met, I am met there. Yes. For me, that's experience of God. That's an experience of whatever people want to call it. I just say God. Yeah. But, and that is what I mean by the, that's where you get changed, right? Yeah. Yeah. You really do. You really do. You know, what happens for me every time when that, when I do that is my, my best friend calls me within like 10 minutes of me, like being, got getting like over it. So we have this like psychic connection and like without fail, he will like the phone will ring. I'm like, dang, how did you do that? (laughs) He's so good. I love that. Yeah. He's so good. Can we talk about Fantasy Island? Yes, oh, please. <laughs> oh my God. Fantasy Island is like the prequel to another book. 
Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So talk because so what, what's the fantasy island like principle? Well, it's this fantasy <laughs> that I always had that someone is going that there. Well, there's there's a few different things in the in the book. It's like there's this place where everything is beautiful and it works perfectly and people are happy and they're, you know, married, they've, they're married to their soulmates and they, they drink with no consequence. And it's like that there's this place where life is perfect and beautiful and and nothing hurts. Right. Yes. Total utopia. And everyone else is living that life and you're the only one who's not. (laughs) Right. You're the one that's fucked up and not quite getting it. Right. And you right. just have to, and you clearly just have to try harder. For me, right. it was like, right. well, and, and you know, when it's, when I, when I think about it in terms of drinking, it's like, well, clearly I'm just not, all these people can drink and it just seems to work and that they're not doing like, it's not affecting yeah. them the way it affects me. So clearly I just have to try harder. Right. I'm just not doing it right. I have to drink, I have to drink right. I'm drinking right. I have to drink right. <laughs> I have to manage it better. Right. And, and in, a, in, in a way that, that idea is real, you know, you, when the fantasy is real, what I have realized is that you have letting go of that fantasy. Mm-hmm. So there's a fantasy of the drinking thing, but then there's the fantasy of the relationship that's going to yes. save me. Yes. And that's almost like I have learned in sobriety that that is the thing underneath the thing. It's like, that's the roots of it all. Right. hundred percent. Me too. I think for most people, hundred percent, it's like yeah. this, there's a person. Yes. Who's gonna there's stop. a re- re- relationship that's going to save me. hundred percent. Right. And when I'm skinny enough, right. Then, then he'll show up. When, which by the way, I have been skinny enough and he didn't show up. I was literally just talking to my eating disorder therapist about this this morning. Yeah. Right. So, you know, when I when I my business is successful enough, when I make enough money, when I have the right clothes, when I write all all of the when I then and then then he'll be able to show up, right? I've got to clear out all of that stuff so that he can show up so that then I'll be okay. (laughs) And then everything will be perfect and nothing will hurt anymore. Perfect, exactly. Yeah. So that that's, that's really been my big work in sobriety and letting go of that fantasy is still hard. Yeah. Still, it's still, it's really disappointing, you know, but I, but I have accepted that that's not true, you know, and I, and I have spent enough time getting, getting to know myself and getting to know myself and dating and all that enough people to go like, Oh, I'm the one. (laughs) I'm the one. Right. Right. Um, but it's, it's to me, it's extraordinarily disappointing. It is, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it really is. It's really a bummer. I was saying you. Said in the I hate like, saying that because it sounds like such a bummer, but it's just it just is. <laughs> fucking sucks. <laughs> I'm so boring. Someone else would be so much more exciting. <laughs> And you said in the book, you're like, I'm going to write a book about like online dating in your forties. And I was like, Oh, I, I'm going to co-author that with you. Yeah, please <laughs> I've do. Tapped I've tapped myself to write that book with you because 
holy shit. It's a whole thing. Oh my God. It is such a whole thing. And I don't want to like, you know, my poor, my poor listeners are like, wait, don't tell Where are we going? Right. You know, but it's, you know, one thing that I'll say is that I do think this is really important because I hear this all the time from women because should I stay or should I go is my biggest, that's, that's where, that's my sweet spot. That's where I live. That's where I do my work. Mm. And you know, one of the things that I hear over and over and over again is like, I'm just, I'm so afraid. And it's this incredibly raw moment when women come to this realization of like, I just, I don't want to be alone. What if I'm alone forever? What if I never meet anyone else? You know? And my response is usually like, you might not like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to fucking sugarcoat this. And I'm not going to bullshit you. You actually might not. You might also be okay with that or better said, you know, cause I don't know that I'm okay with the idea that I will never, that I might never meet someone and I might like right. live the rest of my life alone. Like I'm not actually okay with that. It sounds like you should be, but no, I don't think anyone is. No, exactly. But, but what I will say is that I am alone and I'm not fucking miserable. Right. I am not incomplete alone. No, I've had some of the happiest years of my life alone. Yeah. Like, Truly. Yeah, totally. To- uh, me too. I mean, oh my God, way more happy yeah. than I was when I was married. That's for damn sure. Yeah. And, you know, we had some happy times, but you know, the, the answer, so it's, it's, it's not like a, you know, cookie cutter pie in the sky, rainbows and unicorns, right. On either end, either, you know, I can't, I'm not going to say like, yeah, of course you will. And I'm sure as hell I'm not going to say, uh, but I will say, you know, you might not, and, 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 and you might be, you're going to be okay if you do the yeah. work. Yeah. If you do the work is always the, the asterisks, you know, it's the same thing with people when they quit drinking. I mean, it's, and it's funny because the situations are similar. Like people aren't generally coming to you in a happy marriage, right? Obviously right? they're suffering. Right. And people don't go to get sober because their relationship with alcohol is fine. They're suffering. Right. But we are so afraid of what we don't know. And we're so afraid. I was afraid of what life was going to look like with alcohol. I thought it was game over. I thought it was the end of everything. Yeah. For me. I mean, truly, I thought it was the end of everything. And to not drink. To not drink. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. So, and it's not, it was like, it's not, but that doesn't mean that there weren't real losses. hundred percent. It doesn't mean that there weren't, re- there, there wasn't real grief. It doesn't mean that even sometimes still there's like, man, bummer. Bummer. Yeah. Right. But like net, net. Wow. hundred percent. I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Nope. And there are also some days when I'm like, Oh, that looks really good. <laughs> I know. Or like, God, it would be so, I wish I could just go somewhere else for fucking four hours, you know? Yeah. Right. Right. Ugh. Ugh. Right. But, <laughs> but it's a, but it is the fantasy too. Like that's not real. Right. You know, the reality for me is like, is there's no relief, not even for a minute. I don't think I'd feel a minute of relief drinking at this point, but, Mm -mm. and just like going back to that relationship that isn't right for you anymore or whatever, there's no relief there. Right. Well, exactly. And like, that's the choice, right? It's the choice between the, you know, the misery, you know, and the, and you know, the possibilities of whatever that you don't know, right. Or just the unknown. Right. And at a certain point, the misery that you know really does just become too unbearable. Yes. If it is that, if that is, is that miserable? Yes. Right. And, and I, that do I say or do I go question? I, God bless you for taking that one on. 
It's a big one. It's a, it's a big one. And, you know, the thing that I say about doing the work is that while, and I think this is relevant, you know, this is definitely relevant to your work too, is that, you know, 50% of we, you know, we all say like for 50% of first marriages end in divorce, but seven, uh, 68% of second marriages also do really. And 73% of third marriages do, but that's only because we're not doing the work. Right. Because we're right. like, oh, he was an asshole. So let me just get a new one. Yeah. Right. Or she was the problem. So, you know, just trade them out and not actually focus on, you know, I don't think I'm in any danger of that. I can't imagine getting married again any more than I can imagine. Like, I don't know. I yeah. mean, having another kid. Right? <laughs> <laughs> seems so ridiculous. Right. Yeah, totally. Not I- that I don't want it, but, but, but yeah, I can see that. I mean, my mom, my mom has been married five times, oh, you know, that's right. She just went, you know, kept going. Right. And not doing, not doing the work to figure out for herself, like right. why she was making the choices that she was making. Exactly. Right. She's, she's proof positive. <laughs> like, yeah. But I mean, that's, that's about doing the work, right? We, we can bypass it all we want, but the results will literally be the same. Yeah. I say we don't get away with anything. We don't. We no. don't. We don't get away with anything. Unfortunately, <laughs> we try real, real, we, we try, try. Real, we real tried hard. for years and then here we are. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God, Laura, we could talk about, I think we could talk about all of this all day, but thank you so much for coming. Oh, this is this so fun. Um, tell people where they can find you. Yeah. So all my work is on my website, which is my name, uh, lauramccowan.com. And then I'm on Instagram, although I've been taking a little break for a month. Ooh, a month. Um, Nice. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I was not. It was. It's a. It's a whole thing. Yeah. I'm. Not, but I am there, and I and I actually do love it when I'm in the right place. I'm on Facebook, but I'll. But, but my website is probably the best. That's yeah. where. And everything will be in the show notes. And 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 your book is called We Are the Yes. Ideas. And and I I really highly recommend whether you're struggling with alcohol or not that this is this is a memoir that who was I, I was talking to Laura Belgray and we were we were talking about books and I was like and I love her so much so Laura and I went to the same elementary school or like no we went way she got there in high school like yeah so we've known each other for you know we kind of we grew up around the corner from each other so oh my god so you're a New Yorker yeah I am and so but I was talking to Laura Belgray and she was like you know I don't always love memoir she's like it's ridiculous I'm writing a memoir I know I don't find them the easiest to reach like but Laura's memoir was so good it's so oh. like not and I I, I I feel exactly the same way I feel exactly Thank you. the same way that's so that's such a compliment I love her I do too I do too for people not, not listen who don't know who um, Laura is she's a writer. <laughs> She's like, yeah. She okay. is a professional writer. Professional yeah. writer. <laughs> so, but yeah. And, sh- and, uh, it's, I, I love it. I love the book and I love it from, I mean, yes, I related to the drinking part, but I related more, I think to the, the, the process and the journey and the humanity part just Thank wrote. You. Yeah. I loved it. Thank so you. highly recommend everyone read it. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much, Laura. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Divorce Survival Guide podcast. If you like what you hear, head on over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen in and leave me a review. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at the Divorce Survival Guide. I'll see you next time. And until then, remember, you, my love, deserve to be happy.